up to him, and, he, and, and Luke is careful to tell us here in verse 25 that he is putting him to the test. So Jesus is in the middle of a key teaching time, and Christ is tested here. He's put to the test. Now, as one commentator said, he said this, quote, a lawyer would not be concerned, would be concerned not with secular studies, but with the law in the Jewish sense. So we need to understand who this person was here. He was concerned in the, the law in the Jewish sense, or the first five books of the Old Testament. He put Jesus to the test. That is to say that he asked this question, not in the search for information, but to see what kind of answer Jesus would produce. He may even been hoping that Jesus would do badly and that he would have the opportunity of showing him up. And so this was not a discussion where someone came to him and said, you know, I, I'm really concerned about this. Uh, what should I do to inherit eternal life? I mean, that's a question that if someone asks you, is, that's, a, that's a great question for someone to ask. So the question, it's not that it was a bad question, it was just a bad motive. He didn't ask Jesus because he was really concerned about it. He asked Jesus to try to pin him down or to prove him wrong. Well, Jesus responds to this lawyer, and he uses the lawyer's area of expertise, the law. He says, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And the lawyer's response is actually a very biblical response, and Jesus affirms it. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. What he's doing is he's quoting Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5. He'll put it on the screen for you. This is Deuteronomy 6, 5. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. He's also quoting there, he's referring to Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, when it says this. I also put it on the screen. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the children of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And so what he's doing here is, is this lawyer is coming back to the Scriptures, to the law, and he's saying this is it. So he gives a biblical response. And Jesus himself has affirmed this back in Matthew 22, verse 37 to 40. He says this, Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. And so what is happening here is that as this person tries to test Jesus, this is, this is what's setting up the parable. This person's trying to test Jesus, trying to prove him wrong. So Jesus turns the table and says, okay, let's go with your area of expertise here. And so he says, what is going on here? What, what, what do you, how do you interpret the law? The person gives the response. Jesus affirms it. Now, it seems a little shocking to us on this side of the cross, to read him say, you answered correctly, verse 28, do this and you will live. Um, is, is Jesus affirming a work salvation there? Is he affirming that, that if you simply do enough good, God will save you? No, that's not what he's doing. What Jesus is doing is he knows this person's motives, and he's using his argument to teach this person. So Jesus is not commending a new system of legalism. He is, he is pointing to the end of all legalism. You see, the lawyer here, he wanted a rule or a set of rules that, could, that he could keep and so merit and so earn eternal life. 
Jesus is telling him that eternal life is not a matter of keeping rules at all. To live in love is to live in the life of the kingdom of God. And so there's a follow-up question here. The follow-up question is this. In verse 29, again, Luke tells us this person's heart condition, but desiring to justify himself, he said, who is my neighbor? Again, trying to trap him trying to justify his, his lack of care of other people. Now, it may have been due to the fact that the idea of love for all of mankind had not yet reached him, but this parable, we need to understand this here, okay? This parable is in response to the second question. It is not a direct answer to the first question, okay? Jesus does not give this parable to answer how to... Uh, uh, to gain eternal life. That's not what he's saying there. He's not saying, okay, take care of people, love on people, and you will get eternal life. What he is doing is he's trying to answer the second question, who is my neighbor? And by that, he tells a parable. So I submit to you that the main point of the parable is that a true love for God will overflow into a love for others. The main point of the parable is that a true love for God will, in fact, overflow into a love for other people. Because this person didn't understand the idea of loving your neighbor as yourself. He understood theologically the concept of loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. He understood that. He was, he was an expert in the law. But he did not know how to practically work out loving your neighbor as yourself. And we need to understand that a love for God and a love for others are always linked together. I put a few verses on the screen that you can just jot the references down. John 13, 35, by this all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Philemon 4 and 5, Paul wrote, I thank my God, making mention of you always in my prayers, hearing of your love and faith which you have towards the Lord Jesus and toward all the saints. 2 Peter 2, love the brotherhood, fear God. A love for other people and a love for God are always connected. And I submit to you, and I say this very seriously, if you claim to have a love for God and do not love people, you do not love God. They are connected in the Scriptures. So again, the main point of the parable here is that a true love for God will overflow into a love for other people. This is what is happening, the culture of the parable. Let me share with you the characters of the parable. Jesus introduced and he creates several people here in this parable that he uses to instruct us. We have first the priest and the Levite. They're going down the road, and there's, they come upon a man who uh, was beaten and left for dead. And they pass by, both of them pass by on the other side, and do not attempt to help this man. This was a notoriously dangerous road that this man was on. 
I've seen pictures of it where it, it's, it's in a very rocky terrain and, and it is an incline for, because Jerusalem is much higher in elevation and so you're coming down to Jericho and there's ravines and, and, and ridges and valleys that you go and there's lots of places where people could hide out in. And so no doubt that this is what happened here in the story that Jesus tells is that people, they hid out and they were waiting and they, and they came across this man that was a lone man traveling alone and so they came out and they, and they beat him, they robbed him, and they, they had no regard for his life at all, and they left him for dead. And coming from Jerusalem to Jericho, there's a priest and a Levite. Now the choice of the characters for the story was a good parallel for the lawyer to hear. He needed to hear this. The priest represented God to man and man before God. This was his role. And the Levite was dedicated to service and to worship. These were intensely spiritual people. These were people who loved the law. And if you asked them, do you love God, they would affirm that and they would not deny it. This was good that Jesus brought these characters here. But they did not stop. Why? Well, there's some possible excuses here. I listed them on the screen for you. Possibly they were in a hurry. Maybe that they needed to get to Jerusalem. Their time, because they were coming from Jerusalem to Jericho, their time of service in the temple was most likely done. And so they, they, were, they hadn't seen their family. And so they, they were in a hurry to get back to their family. Maybe that's the case. We don't know. Maybe they were exhausted. They just finished this long time of service. And now they're on this road. And they are just tired. They don't have the energy to help another person. They've just spent time helping people in the temple and in Jerusalem. They just don't have time. They're exhausted. I mentioned maybe their families were expecting them is another possible excuse. Maybe they felt that they weren't qualified. <laughs> I don't know anything about first aid. I mean, the guy, I mean... He, he looks like he's a goner, so I, I, I don't know what I can bring to the table here. Maybe they felt like this is not their area of expertise. They've not been trained for this. So pass by, keep walking. Maybe they thought, this poor man, he, he's beyond help. I'm not going to get in the way of God's plan. This obviously happened under the sovereign hand of God, and so he's beyond help. I'm going to continue on my journey. Quite possibly, he thought maybe this was a decoy. Maybe he thought, is he really hurt? Is he really, or, is, or, is, or we're going to stop and we're going to help, and his buddies are going to, they're going to come out from the caves, and they're going to come out from the, the cracks and crevices, and they're going to rob me. No, I'm too smart for this. Walk on the other side of the road. Probably the most compelling reason is that they were at risk for becoming unclean. If the body, if the, if the person did turn out to be dead and, he, and they knelt down and they shook him or, or they rolled him over and the, the man had perished, they would have been ceremonially unclean. Trip back for purification. It wasn't worth it to them. They didn't want to risk becoming unclean. 
These are possible excuses. We don't know the exact reasons why. Jesus doesn't tell us all the reasons why, but I think it's good when we come to a parable to kind of put ourselves in the culture here and to understand the characters a little bit. I like what Spurgeon said when he was talking about this text of Scripture and, and, uh, um, and maybe what they were thinking. He says this, The man might die, and the person found near the body might be charged with the murder. It's always awkward to be found alone in a dark spot with a corpse of one who has evidently suffered from foul play. Well said, Spurgeon. Moreover, he could pray for the man, you know, and he was glad to find that he had a tract with him, which he would leave near him. I love Spurgeon. He goes on to say, You have smiled over what the priest might have said. But if you make any excuses for yourselves, whenever real need comes before you and you are not able to relieve it, and you are able to relieve it, you need not smile over your excuses. The devil will do that. You had better cry over them. For there is the gravest reason for lamenting that your heart is hard towards your fellow creatures when they are sick and perhaps sick unto death. Well said, Spurgeon. So we have the priests and Levi here in, these, in the characters. What about the Good Samaritan? Now, he doesn't call him the Good Samaritan. I don't believe in this text. He just calls him a Samaritan. But um, in your Bibles, most likely, if you have a heading there, it'll say the parable of the Good Samaritan. My copy of Scripture does that. I know many do. And this parable is known as the Good Samaritan. You understand that that would have been uh, a, radically, uh, a, a radical idea at that time. That would be like us saying the Good Nazi or the Good Terrorist. In their minds... They're, the Samaritans were not good for anything. They were cunning. They were backbiting. They were uh, not to be trusted. Um, this must have been shocking for the lawyer to hear Jesus make the Samaritan the hero. It must have been shocking for some of the disciples as well to see that the Samaritan is the hero of the story. Because you've got to understand, for the Jew, it was better to suffer than to accept the Samaritan's help. And so when Jesus makes the Samaritan the hero of this and that this man's life is saved by him, that would have been shocking. Let me give you a couple quotes about this to give you some ideas. Rabbinic literature said this, idolaters, i.e. Gentiles, are not to be delivered when in imminent danger and that apostates, Samaritans would be considered apostates, are to be led into the danger. This is the thought. This is the attitude, the feeling towards these people. Again, rabbinic literature says, let, let a man never associate with a wicked person, not even for the purpose of bringing him near to the Torah. There's a tremendous amount of hatred here. And these are the characters of the story. But let's look at the Samaritan. How does this Samaritan interact? How does he, how does he serve this man who he does not know? He doesn't know this man's name. He's never met him before. Jesus in his parable does not give us any indication that this man had any contact with this poor, beaten person at all. And he is a stranger to him. And yet, he ministers to him. Let's see how he did that. First, he showed compassion. In verse 33, it says, But when the Samaritan, as he was journeying, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion or he took pity upon him. My mind goes to Matthew chapter 9, verse 36. But when he saw the multitudes, Jesus was moved with compassion for them because they were weary and scattered like sheep, having no shepherd. You know, I mentioned before that we are in the middle of a city here. It's a small city. 
I love talking with, with individuals, uh, particularly Scott and Abby Creeves, because I always refer to Verona as a small town, and, and they always remind me that this is a big town compared to where they grew up. Um, I think that they had one stoplight in their town. I'm not certain about that. But um, for, for, to me, this, this, is, this is a small town. It's a wonderful town, though. Last night, I, I, as I was finishing up my preparations in my office, I had the windows open and I could hear the sounds from the hometown days going on over at the park. In just a few minutes, literally hundreds of people would gather on our doorstep. We have a parade of opportunity. We are in a very strategic location to show compassion. But see, I think the part of the problem is the reason why we don't end up showing Christ's love to people is because we have lost the ability to feel with people. We're so quick to make excuses or so quick to say that they, well, they just brought it on themselves or, or, or whatever the case may be. And I would just urge us as a, as a church here that, that we would learn from the Samaritan that we would have compassion on people. And there's a world out here that the people, that they are broken and they're much like this, this, this beggar. They're much like this, this person who was walking down the road and the world has beaten them up and has robbed them and has spit them out and they are laying there. And they need compassion. He took pity on them. That's one of the things I love about Jesus. He overthrew tables and temples and he wept over people. He took a whip and he, he made a whip and, and, and he drove people out of a temple and, and showed anger at times. But he was moved with compassion because he saw people weary, scattered, like sheep having no shepherd. You know, we live in a terrible world. My heart breaks every week as I read of of other people who just go through horrific things and people who make really bad decisions. You know what I'm afraid of? I'm afraid of, of my heart becoming really, really cold and calloused. I'm afraid that I'm going to lose my ability to show compassion to people. I'm afraid I'm going to see people and the, the bad decisions they make. I mean, we could argue that this man on the road, he was dumb. Why did he travel alone? Why did he go down this road where he knew that there was danger? See, he brought it on himself. But see, that's not the point of the text. The point of the text is that we need to show love and compassion to other people. And if you have the love of Jesus Christ reigning in your life, you of all people should show compassion. And I should show compassion to people. It doesn't mean we wink at sin. It doesn't mean that we ignore the, the, uh, or that we, um, uh, we, we think that sin is of no consequence. But it means we show love to one another. And so I guess the question that you need to ask yourself and I need to ask myself as I approach this text this morning is if we're supposed to be like the Samaritan and we're supposed to have compassion on people, who's the beaten up person in your life? that it's easy to go on the other side of the road and walk past them? Is it the person that has a different ideology than you? Is it the person that struggles with their sexual identity, sexual preferences? 
I think for the Christian, it's easy to walk on the other side of the road and keep going. We have a world. There's a parade of opportunity for us to show compassion every day of our lives. Let us not be the Levite and walk on the other side of the road. Not only show compassion, he showed care. It says there he went, in verse 34, he went to him and he bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Most likely this man didn't have a first aid kit, so he used the bandages that, the, the bandage that he used to bind up his wounds were probably his own clothes. He probably took his clothes and tore them into pieces and he sacrificed that to help this person. The oil and the wine were used, probably no doubt, with the wine and the alcohol to clean the wounds and, and, to, and to try to find some ointment, some healing ointment there. And then he walked while the stranger rode on his animal. He walked alongside of him so that he could, so that this stranger who he never met, and we have no indication that he even had a conversation. We didn't even know that this man was conscious. We don't know that this person told him, thank you. We don't know that this person asked for help. We don't know anything about this. All we know is that it was in the Samaritan's heart to show compassion and care to the stranger, this person who should have been his enemy. He showed care. We've got to care about the souls and the lives of people around us. We, we have got to be a church that we are moved with compassion and we are motivated to show care to people who are hurting. This has to be characteristic of us. Because if we truly love God, we will love our neighbor as ourselves. And it's, it's, it's kind of a, a simple rule to live by. We teach it to our kids, the golden rule, right? Do unto others as you, as you would have them do unto you. And so for me, that factors into a lot of my decisions. If, if, if there's someone who has the ability to help and um, I feel like maybe they brought it on themselves... You know what, that doesn't usually prohibit me from helping them. The reason why is because I've done a lot of stupid things in my life where I've brought consequences on my own self, and yet people have shown me mercy and care and compassion, and I've appreciated it. And if I've been blessed by that, surely I should do that towards others. And we have to ask ourselves, do we deserve the care and compassion of Jesus at all? None of us deserve that. And so we are at debtors, and so we are always debtors serving others other debtors. We are dying men serving dying men. That is what our position in life is. And so it is, our, it is incumbent upon us because of the love of God to show love to our neighbors. He showed courage, thirdly. He showed courage. Now, you got to put yourself in this scenario here. A Samaritan coming into town with a Jew in such a bad state would be subject to all sorts of speculation. One person, I remember him teaching on this text, he used the illustration of it had been like, you know, many, many years ago uh, when uh, there was lots of uh, uh, fighting in the West uh, between, um, you know, the, the stereotypical cowboys and Indians. Uh, it'd be like a, an Indian, uh, um, Native American, trying to be correct here, um, you uh, come across a man who was scalped and him loading him up and bringing him to the trading post, saying, I didn't have anything to do with this. Most people would be like, right. But he showed courage to do it. This person showed courage to come into the, to bring this man and care for his wounds and at the risk of being misunderstood. 
I think sometimes we don't want to show compassion and care and love towards sinners around us. It's because we're afraid of other Christians misunderstanding us. Oh, do you agree with that? Oh, you agree with their lifestyle then? It takes courage to be the Good Samaritan. It takes courage to show care and compassion. It takes courage to do the right thing. It's not always popular. In fact, we'll be misunderstood a lot. But we must show courage to do the right thing. And finally, this Samaritan showed commitment. The amount of money that he left was likely enough to pay for about two months of room and board. He would settle any other debts on his way back. And so he was committed to this person's healing process. It wasn't just come in, do one little quick thing, and then move on your way. He showed commitment to this person. I told you that we have a parade of opportunity. People gather. People go by our church all the time. People, that in just a little bit, there's going to be people just sitting on our doorstep, literally waiting for the parade. And I don't have all the answers, but I think that we need to take advantage of these opportunities. God has strategically placed us in this city. He's given us a heritage that we must protect and we must uphold. He's given us the word of God. He's given us the, uh, a saving grace that we should not be selfish with. So are we good Samaritans? The characters of the story instruct us in so many different ways. But finally, there's a command. The command of the parable. Jesus ends the story with a question and then a command. And he says, go and do likewise. He says, who is the neighbor? The person answers the question correctly. The lawyer answers the question. He says, well, the one who showed him mercy. He says, okay, you go and do likewise. The man had asked, who is my neighbor? But Jesus faced him with a question, to whom am I a neighbor? He said, who's my neighbor? But what Jesus is trying to get this person to say, to whom are you a neighbor to? He was an expert in the law, this man was, this lawyer was. Now he must think whether the priests and the Levites who scrupulously retained the moral purity required by the law really kept the law, which likewise showed them to love their neighbor as themselves. And so the command of the parable is for us to go and do likewise. This is why I can say that we need to be instructed from this parable. We need to go and we need to take uh, 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 advantage of the opportunities that God has brought our way. And we need to show Christ's love to people. We will be taken advantage of. We will be misunderstood. There will be times when we'll get burned. But it is worth it. I remember going down to Louisiana after Hurricane Katrina. My wife and I spent five months down there. We lived in a 25-foot RV. It was great. It was just me and my wife. We didn't have any children yet. We had our, our cat with us at the time, that we had a cat at the time. And that cat was never the same after spending five months in an RV. But nonetheless, we spent the time down there in Louisiana. And I remember getting uh, resources from all over the country and trying to find ways to give them out to people. And I remember uh, a, a friend of mine, a wise man, sat down with me and said, and, and I'm so glad he did this because it prepared me. He said, Jeremy, you're trying to do a good thing down there. You're trying to help people. You're trying to serve people. You're trying to meet their needs. You're trying to point them to Jesus Christ. These are all good things. Know this, Jeremy, you will be taken advantage of. There will be people that will tell you they want to hear the gospel of Christ just so they can get the food that you have. Give them food anyway, is what he told me. I'm so thankful for that advice. 
Because I walked in knowing that, yeah, I would be taken advantage of at times, but it didn't matter. I was meeting their needs. And hopefully God, in times past and in years later, he can draw their hearts and using other means and any means possible. He can do whatever he wants to draw people's hearts to himself. But in that moment, in, in that year, in, 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 after that hurricane had, had, had just torn apart that, that part of the country, my job was to show love, compassion, courage, and care. That was my job. So the lawyer asked, who is my neighbor? Jesus taught him that my neighbor is not simply my fellow Jew, my fellow synagogue member, my fellow worshiper. My neighbor is that person who is in need, whose need I can see, whose need I can meet. My neighbor may be on natural terms my most bitter enemy. The central question is not who is my neighbor, but what is my duty? And so who is your neighbor? Are you being neighborly? Another commentator said this, there is something very comfortable about a discussion of theology. We can discuss on a total theoretical level, enjoying ourselves tremendously, and after stimulating interchange, feel a great deal of satisfaction and a conviction that we were certainly the right in everything we said. We can do this without ever being forced to explore the practical implications of all that we have affirmed. It's not enough to be right theologically. That, that correct theology has to translate in itself into tangible acts of love and care both to God and to our neighbors. So the main point of the parable is that a true love of God will overflow into love for others. We have a parade of opportunity, not just today, but all the time. What are we doing to take advantage of that? Tomorrow we have an opportunity to interact with people in our community. Are we taking advantage of that? You know, I told you that that there's this man here in this text and he was brutal, excuse me, he was beaten, he was bruised, he was hurting. And one man came by and did not let that scare him off. And he helped him. This city is filled with beaten people and bruised people who need Jesus Christ. Please help me think through creative ways to reach these people. I don't have all the answers. I don't know exactly how we can always capitalize on something like this today. But I want us, I I believe that if there's, you know, what is there, 150 of us or so here today, we all put our heads together and start thinking, I guarantee you, we would come up with some really good ideas of how to reach the gospel of Jesus Christ. So I'm asking you to do this morning, I'm asking you to be a Samaritan with me. And let's go over to the hurt. Let's go over to the beaten. Let's go over to the bruised. And let's care for them. Let's not walk on the other side of the road. I don't always do this, but in fact, I rarely ever do this. But let me share with you something I wrote in my journal last night. Forgive the grammar, it was just me writing. As I sit in my office finalizing my sermon and teaching lessons and teaching lesson for tomorrow morning, I hear music coming through my open windows. It's a beautiful night outside tonight. I love to sit in my office when it's quiet and cool outside. The music tonight doesn't bother me. It's coming from the hometown day's festivities. Anouk and I walked over there last night to see what was going on, having never been there before. I can see why families like to go there. Hundreds of people are sipping beer, dancing to music, and enjoying cotton candy in the midst of carnival rides and games. I wonder where they will be in 12 hours. I wonder where they will be in eternity. My soul breaks because I know most of them will most likely perish. 
They won't perish because of the beer, music, or cotton candy. They will perish because they do not know Jesus. Most would recognize the name Jesus, like I recognize the name Francis I. I know he's supposed to have some spiritual significance, but honestly, he means nothing to me. I can't imagine meeting Jesus meaning nothing to me. Or maybe I can, to my shame. The song just finished. I hear the crowds cheering. It sounds great. Part of me wants to be there with them. Another part of me wants to weep. God, please use this little church called Memorial Baptist Church in Verona, as flawed as we are, to introduce Jesus to the crowd in Verona. God, please use me, as flawed as I am, to help people to know Jesus. Not in a historical sense, but in an eternal sense. God, please put a passion in my heart to evangelize. God, please light a fire in our church to share the good news of Jesus Christ. Tomorrow, literally hundreds of people will be on our doorstep waiting for and then watching a parade. How can we use this opportunity to share the good news of Jesus Christ? I have to confess that I feel somewhat guilty that we're hosting a fundraiser that's taking people out of church instead of overtly sharing Christ with people. At least it's for a missions trip. Maybe that will open some doors of conversation. How can we change? What can we be doing differently? God, I need your wisdom. God, we need your creativity. God, we need the boldness of the apostles that the apostles prayed for in Acts. I know the song's done. Four minutes closer to eternity. Let's pray. Father, I pray that we would be like the Samaritan and care about people. We get so caught up with our vacation plans and our next purchase in life and our job promotions and or even just trying to survive life every day. That we, that I, drive past, walk past, look past hundreds of people who need Christ. Father, we know that you're in control of salvation and we don't try to take over that. But we also know that we are commanded to tell people of Christ. We are commanded to show care and compassion to people who no one else wants to do that. I pray that we would do that. I pray that we would have a a burning desire to see people come to know Christ as their Savior. Father, help us. In Christ's name, amen.